nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. Nobody trusts anybody now. There's nothing else I can do. Hold up. Welcome to My Views of My Own Monster Movie Mystery Mashup, man, with me, your host, Doug McDonald. And today I am joined by a very, very special co-host. I'm telling you, this guy, he's the perfect co-host for an episode like this. He knows what it's like to be cold. He knows what it's like to be on an icy mountaintop, isolated. And I'll tell you, it you can't kill this guy, man. He's like a real-life McCready or a real-life uh, whatever Joel Edgerton's character's name was. It's not coming to me at the moment, but we'll get, it, we'll get to it when the podcast moves further into the films. That's right. I'm joined by none other than Brandon Case. What's up, Brandon? What's up, Doug? Well, man, it's a monster movie, monster movie mystery mashup, man. <laughs> excellent <laughs> i guess i guess let's tell the people what we're getting into this was uh this episode was inspired by the episode we did uh the shining versus dr sleep uh this is a little bit different because that was a very straightforward dr sleep is a sequel to the shining this is very different because the thing 2011 is not it's a prequel but it's not even fully a prequel it's a prequel slash remake i don't know why they didn't didn't pick one way or another so it's not an exact one for one of the last time we did something like this, but it's very similar. And much like how uh, you've got your, your fans of uh, Stanley Kubrick, you got your John Carpenter fans, man. It's a passionate group of people. All right, man, let's just, uh, let's start with a real quick, uh, what the hell are these movies, dude? First up, we've got The Thing, 1982. Directed by John Carpenter, starring Kurt Russell, uh, Wilfred Brimley, several several other people. Who else is? Oh, Keith David. I, I can't believe I forgot to say him before Wilfred Brimley because he's kind of a bigger character in this. In a remote Antarctica, a group of American research scientists are disturbed at their base camp by a helicopter shooting at a sled dog. When they take the dog, it brutally attacks both human beings and canines in the camp, and they discover that the beast can assume the shape of its victims. A resourceful helicopter pilot, Kurt Russell, and the camp doctor, Richard Dysart, lead the camp crew in a desperate, gory battle against the vicious creature before it picks them all off one by one. That's a good description. Uh, and shit, let's just do a real quick uh, overview of The Thing 2011, which is the prequel slash remake. It's almost almost identical in so many ways. Uh, <laughs> but, now, but now we're in the Norwegian camp. The original one is the uh, Camp 31. It's an American outpost. This is the Norwegian outpost, which 
is you know where the thing comes from in the first movie after norwegian researchers discovered an alien ship buried in the ice paleontologist kate lloyd played by mary elizabeth winstead aka ramona flowers hey what's up nothing hey you know pac-man i know of him well pac-man was originally called puckman they changed it because uh, not because pac-man looks like a hockey puck paku paku means flap your mouth and they were worried people would change scratch out the p turn it into an f like <laughs> yeah that's amazing um am i dreaming i'll leave you alone forever now thanks as we all know from uh mm. scott pilgrim versus the world joins the team at the isolated arctic outpost to investigate she finds an organism that appears to have perished in the crash eons ago but in fact is about to awake freed from its icy prison the insidious life form goes on the attack paranoia spreads like wildfire among the crew as they fight to survive against a creature that assumes the shapes of its victims and i'm sorry uh to the director of this film this is a very nordic name i wonder if he even is perhaps norwegian uh matthias van hedgingen is this the, what do you, what's your guess man is that close uh you're braver than me i have no idea how to pronounce that it, it's a cool name but that's a lot of consonants in a row it's, it's like those nordic names they look really cool written on paper because it's uh there's so many j's and shit. <laughs> j's here's the, here's and the spelling for everyone. it's but, but you know it's not matthias like you would expect it's m-a-t-t-h-i-j-s Matigis van h i h e i j i n i n g e n hinginigan <laughs> Matthias and Jennigan. For the rest of the episode, he's Matthias and Jennigan. And so much apologies, especially to any Norwegian listeners. I'm sorry, I don't know much about your culture or how to pronounce your names. Starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And I'm telling you, man, I love this guy, uh, Joel Edgerton as Sam Carter. Another actor I love so much in this. Uh, and another person whose name I can't, I don't know the pronunciation on the top of my head. Uh, Edwale Akinue. Very famous to anyone who watched the. HBO series Oz. He played at a BC. Great actor. Amazing actor. He really deserved a lot more lines in this movie. I would have preferred if he had a bigger role. And then, of course, one of my favorites is, uh, and this is another Norwegian name, Christopher Hivju, who played Jonas. Uh, he's most remembered from Game of Thrones. He was the wildling that was uh, desperately in love with Brienne of Tarth. <laughs> He, he was one of my favorite parts of, of Game of Thrones, those later seasons. Torment. Yeah, he was, yeah, Torment. He was, he was yeah. so great. And I, and I loved like how pure his uh, love for Brienne of Tarth was. Right. He, 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 like, he wanted a powerful woman, you know, and she was the most powerful <laughs> woman in all of uh, the North or even King's mm -hmm. Landing. I mean, anywhere you, anywhere you go. She yeah. fought the Hound, dude. She did. <laughs> But yeah, no, I was I was super pleased when I saw him. I was uh, anytime I see him anywhere, Tormund, I'm super happy. Like I said, man, these movies are going head to head. Dude. Uh, same thing we did, Doctor Sleep versus The Shining. We're gonna say what we like, what we don't like, and at the end, both films are gonna get get scored in the fairest way we possibly can. It's a four uh, four tier scoring system. We score on action slash in this in this particular instance, action and special effects are their own category together because these are both kind of effects-driven movies, especially, of course, the 1982 film. It's what it's known for. Uh, of course, 
acting is its own category plot is its own category and then we have the category that's really just you know it's a personal experience and that is wow factor <laughs> who, who knows what's behind that door brandon well, man, uh, if you want to kick us off dude with first impressions let's let's uh, start with uh with uh the thing 1982 man uh first impressions yeah so my first impression um uh, i love the cold open which is kind of funny because it's an arctic movie but uh, where you get this encapsulation of the story's driving factors, its plots and themes that come up right at the beginning. And so just as a, a brief recap, you have a, um, uh, a dog running through the snow with a helicopter that's chasing it and shooting at it randomly. And, you know, the audience is left in complete confusion as to why this is possibly happening and some sense of agitation, you know, because they're trying to shoot a dog, which makes very little sense yeah. and um and then the helicopter comes in and lands at the base and um the dog runs into it and the pilot's so focused on trying to kill the helicopter that he ends up like shooting one of the people at the base but he clearly doesn't isn't like actually attacking them but everybody's confused and frantic and then ultimately they kill him so you just get this real sense of confusion and um real kind of incomprehensible violence and mistrust between different factions of humans, and also this kind of pervading emotional manipulation that comes from the thing, um, especially as we move into the following scenes and you, the dog's kind of like creeping around and, and you can tell that something's a, a bit amiss, but it really kind of captures that whole feeling of isolation and confusion and violence and, and um, all of this stuff that's gonna be repeated throughout the rest of the movie. Uh, so that that left a very favorable first impression on me. I guess, man, I'm gonna I'll start right where you did too, man. Opening scene, uh, helicopter scene. This is the Norwegians. Uh, this is also uh, in in part of an explanation of how the the other film we're uh, discussing is not an exact prequel, because you know. Oh, by the way, guys, spoiler uh, spoiler alerts throughout, and we will discuss <laughs> the endings of the films as well. If you haven't seen the thing. I highly suggest you watch it. It's a John Carpenter <laughs> classic. Uh, yeah. And I honestly, I highly suggest you watch, I mean, uh, spoiler alert for what I have to say and moving on, I highly suggest you watch The Thing uh, 2011. It's, I thought it was a really good prequel, but like I was saying, this is where the prequel breaks. The uh, Norwegians that are chasing the dog and the helicopter, at the end of the prequel, there are no, there are no Norwegians left alive to do this. At that point, the only... Uh, the only surviving person what I, I think there was one survivor if you watch the credits of the prequel there was like one dude with a gun and then a guy with a helicopter comes and lands and the dude with the gun is like threatening the guy with the helicopter and and forces him to like go up and chase the dog and then they they oh. chase the dog into the u.s camp it's in the there, credits, there was yeah. a stinger in the credits not I, okay so i guess i didn't see the stinger yeah okay well then never mind it, it, it that that links everything perfectly so uh, erase everything <laughs> i just said i didn't see the stinger in the credits i didn't realize that they uh make a connection and show why it, the prequel works damn right. okay well that's uh kind of a weird editing choice i think to not it, just... it was a bit it was a bit odd <laughs> there I mean, were I guess, some uh, there were some unusual choices i guess you know they, they were trying to go for that like uh the end of alien or mm -hmm. aliens with ripley you know sigourney weaver is always the lone survivor and in this, they were doing that, but with uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, right. you know, so yeah. she like, so they gave us a real, uh, 
alien ending, you know, like, oh, she's all alone in the cold, in the dark. Is she going to die too? You know, but right. all right, cool. All right. And, well, that changes and then everything. She, she's not in the stinger either. So, which is kind of interesting. One yeah, must assume so. that she uh, succumbs to the elements. I mean, she's in Antarctica, a million miles from anywhere, and she flamethrower is the only remaining vehicle. <laughs> the only, uh, what are those yep. things called? Like a snow tractor? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So there's like a snow tractor, and the, the, the thing is in it. She lights it up with her flamethrower, and that's gone. Oh, but yep. back to first impression. In so many ways, in so many ways, I do think it's a, it's a great opening scene, the great cold open. You're like, what the hell is going on? Why are they shooting at this dog? Uh, you get uh, what's, you know, when they land, you know, the, the Norwegian runs into their base camp with a rifle and he's firing. And the, the cop who I had called uh, <laughs> ACAB Andy Griffith, played by uh, Donald Moffat. In the movie, his name's Gary, spelled with two R's. So you already know he's a piece of shit. <laughs> Uh, and the reason I called him a cab Andy Griffith is because he wears the exact same uniform as Andy Griffith from the Andy Griffith show and has other similar features, but he also seems like the kind of cop that would shoot your dog. Like, you know, just, <laughs> you know, itchy trigger finger. I'll put this right through your head. You guys going to listen to Gary? You're going to let him give the orders? I mean, he could be one of those things. It's actually, I think it re later on, it really lends to the movie because you you immediately build a strong distrust for this guy. You know, <laughs> like he just seems like he shouldn't have a gun. He, you know, he seems like he lies <laughs> a lot. Uh, we'll get to it later on in, in the criticism section. There is one part of the opening scene I didn't like, and that's a Foley effects. I understand, but I wish they had uh, just tried a little bit harder with how they did the rifle and the gunshots. They weren't matched up. So the gunshot uh, Foley effect wasn't linked quite well enough to the rifle and the rifle didn't have a muscle muzzle flash or a recoil or anything. So it, it, it was one of those things that I couldn't ignore that uh, how unrealistic it seemed that he was firing the rifle. It looked like he was just holding a rifle and you would occasionally hear a gunshot and you would just have to, you know, use your imagination to put those two together that I, I don't want to come out of the gate just sitting here attacking <laughs> attacking the opening scene, but that is my first impression was I did not appreciate that one mistake they made. Uh, well, let's move on over to uh, first impressions. The thing, 2011. Yeah, so um, that one, I think also did a fairly good job of encapsulating what it was trying to be as a movie, which felt much more like a an action film or like a disaster film it kind of yeah. had a vibe similar to day after tomorrow i don't know if you watched that one with jake gyllenhaal from like forever ago i saw that movie in theaters in washington dc and i, I just want to show this one moment because it was so cool it was uh i went and, i went and saw the movie by myself which is not always a boring thing to do sometimes it's actually fun to do that uh i i uh, usually go to the movies by myself actually <laughs> i was uh it was the theater uh, union station in Washington, DC. I had some time and I was like, Hey, I'm going to go watch this. I get in there. Very rowdy audience, which I thought was fun because it wasn't like, you know, a movie that I cared that much about. Mm -hmm. So the, the rowdy audience really in every single way was just improving every aspect of the film and the scene where uh, I think there's like a glacier, like crossing America and all the, all the Americans are trying to get into Mexico, but Mexico has like mobilized the military <laughs> and put up a wall and they're not letting Americans into Mexico. And 
the audience stood up in the middle of the movie and gave a standing ovation to that scene. It was, <laughs> it was hilarious. Every single person was up and up in there, cl clapping, screaming, cheering, and you know, because it was a beautiful uh, turnabout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, shit. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so yeah. So it it felt a little bit more like that. More actiony. More more rompy. A little bit more disastery. Um, and so you open with um, a group of scientists uh, that are at a, you know, one of these Antarctic uh, research stations and they're traversing, you know, the snow and they're homing in or find a signal that's beneath the snow, which in the, in the novella, um, they, it was kind of cool because uh, they discussed this in the novella, but it doesn't really make its way into uh, John Carpenter's uh, 1982 one where they're, they find like a gravitational anomaly or, um, or some sort of signal in the snow in this one. And, uh, and so they're like trying to find it. And then uh, the, the whole like ice uh, like pack like splits and then the snow cat actually like nose dives down into uh, the crack, which presumably um, the big alien spaceship is, is like directly down in there. And so you get this kind of like dramatic like uh, interplay between you know the kind of like slightly body humor uh, that's going on and then you know this and searching for this thing and then like falling into this big like cracking uh, you know action scene so I, I thought that it did a pretty good job of describing what the movie was uh going for as well yeah i mean i i want to yeah i want to uh, start this the basically with the same same thing with like what you did uh opening scene also very cool opening scene and uh, i think what both films were trying to do was you know you're in in antarctica i don't know where the you know, where these were actually filmed probably somewhere in canada uh in the tundra or you know who knows uh alaska maybe but you know the the idea is to make you understand how freezing cold these places are and how isolated they are because that's that's the tone and the mood they're going for and that's one of the things i thought was really good about the prequel is how uh, true to the original film they would stay with so much of so much of everything. I mean, really, like they they really do hit it on the nail on the head so much with keeping it true to the original story and true to the original concept. But yeah, opening scene, they're in a, a big uh, snow terrain vehicle. It's kind of like a basically like a big van with uh, tractor treads. Uh, in the front, there's two Norwegian guys with beards. Uh, you know, telling a telling a dirty joke. I mean, actually, a filthy joke to tell. <laughs> and, then, and in the back, there's a there's the, you know the the nerdy tech guy who's trying. He's like, I, he's I, I found a signal. We got to go check the signal. So these guys have gone away from their uh, research station to go find this signal. They hit a crack in the ground in Antarctica, which are un not uncommon. People, that's actually the way people die in Antarctica oftentimes because they're so hard to see with the blinding whiteness of the snow. They fall into the chasm. Fortunately, the size of the vehicle pins them and, they, and they're stuck there. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was a great opening scene, man. It was just really fun. Got the tone set. And one of the things I was gonna, I, I wanna bring this up just a little bit. It is It goes back to the other, to the original as well is that I, I thought that uh, John Carpenter in a lot of ways was trying to bring a Lovecraftian feel to the uh, movie. And I feel like that's why the monsters are very uh, H.P. Lovecraft, in like stylistically, 
And I felt like uh, this movie is a little bit, it's, it's funny because I, find, I, I, was, I thought this movie was a little bit more along the lines of a Resident Evil movie, a little more mm-hmm. tech, more streamlined, more kind of trying to be visually like that. And I learned some more about this uh, director, uh, Matthias. He had more of a career in doing like commercials and music videos. So he's, you know, mm-hmm. more used to making sleek looking shit. And yeah, so that had more of a Resident Evil vibe to me. And then I went on to learn that the guy that did the score, but the guy that did the score to the 2011 film is the same guy. He did the score to uh, Resident Evil, which I thought was a fantastic score. But yeah, so uh, like I just thought that was an interesting thing that without me even knowing that the the composer that did the score did the score to Resident Evil, I was already feeling that there was a very Resident Evil vibe to this. I actually thought the monsters were very Resident Evil. Uh, So... Yeah, I, I can see that uh, um, a lot, actually. Um, and uh, it's um, it, it does have a very interesting tone. The and you brought up the Lovecraftian kind of feel to John Carpenter's. The uh, original uh, novella that it's based on was written in that same kind of um, science fiction era uh, in like the early uh, 20th century, and so that was definitely kind of the pervading feel in the novella is you get this like extreme claustrophobia and uh, the thing is, is, is really, uh, it's a thing. It's something that we can't understand and, um, and is super smart and like really doing a great job of uh, screwing with these humans and it's in its attempt to survive. Um, so I, I think that was a really good parallel and definitely comes from the original time that, uh, that it was written, which was ages ago. And uh, I mean, just one last thing on the Lovecraftian uh, aspect of some of this is that uh, the mountains of madness, uh, which is one of my favorite HP Lovecraft stories that I've ever read that takes place in Antarctica. And it, and it's, it's just interesting. Like these, uh, these vibes that kind of weave in and out of all these different stories, but these different creators and storytellers. So yeah, man. Uh, but like I said, they're both cool. Uh, the Lovecraftian vibe, obviously very cool. The Resident Evil vibe also also very cool. So I would say, yeah, I think we both had a pretty uh, pretty positive first impression with both movies. I don't know. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and they definitely uh, fit different audiences. Uh, so I'm sure people will have varying reactions. Um, like I I stray a little bit more towards the uh, artsy, you know, Lovecraftian like uh, like off the mainstream vibe. And um, and I know you you tend to go a little bit more mainstream and like really enjoy the action thing, which is why I think that we're we're pretty well suited to have this discussion. So yeah. so yeah, I think uh, they they both do a good job of of being what they're what they are, what they are intending to be. Rewatching these movies and uh, after having our had our discussion on The Shining versus Doctor Sleep, I was like mm-hmm. once again our different uh, <laughs> our eclectic views are going to once again diverge here but this is a little bit different because i didn't i i went into the last episode with 
Dr. Sleep being, in my opinion, at that time, I was like, this is one of the coolest, you know, horror films I've ever seen. If you could even call it a horror film. I just thought it was just an excellent right. film, period. It doesn't even need to be genre specific. And I mean, neither does The Shining, of course. But I went into it. Uh, I was so surprised after that came out. I thought people were just going to be being like, shut up, man. You can't, you know, <laughs> how, how dare you ever say that anybody can come, come, come close to Stanley Kubrick. Blown away by the, the amount of people that were also like, no, dude, Dr. Sleep really was very, very cool, if not cooler than the original <laughs> idea. Uh, well, hey, man, well, be, let's, uh, let's keep, you know, before we get to, to any kind of criticisms, even though I know I've already jumped the gun on that and <laughs> bitching about the gun and <laughs> there was no muzzle flash, no recoil. And I felt like the, uh, the sound, uh, sound effects were off. Uh, let's do uh, favorite scenes, man. If, and if you'd like to start with The Thing 1982, man, and bring up uh, sure. some of your favorite scenes from the film. So if I had to choose, um, my favorite scene would probably be the blood test scene. Um, one of the, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. The, probably one of the things that the 1982 uh, thing did so tremendously well uh, was the use of suspense. Um, as opposed, because you kind of, again, like you, you have this divergence between uh, 2011 does a really good job, like uh, sinking into that action romp. And then the 1982 is much more about this like real, like suspense and, and body horror that um, where you just, you're all crawly inside and it's, it's, it's awful <laughs> and great. But um, the, this particular scene where um, you have, they figured out how to, uh, test uh, to see whether somebody's the thing because the thing is going around and impersonating everybody and uh, it's really smart and so it's able to exactly mimic people and it's doing a really good job of hiding amongst the crew and it's really trying to survive and perpetuate itself um, without like going out into the open and so it's like a it's like a stealth game um, and uh, they figure out that if you uh, draw somebody's blood um, and put it in a Petri dish, um, that blood will also have the thing cells in it. And, um, and they aren't linked. So each one is acting independently. So if you threaten the, the thing, um, the cells that are in the blood, uh, it'll react violently to preserve itself, even if it's not in the best interest of the thing that's over there, like, you know, impersonating someone. So it's uh, as, the, as, the, the, as though the, uh, the thing is like a, like a colony of organisms. It, so, exactly. So you, you perceive it as one thoughts. person or one dog, but it's actually every single, if you cut that dog's paw off, which oh, what a horrible thing to say, <laughs> but, but if you, but you know, it's not really a dog, man, it's an alien. If you yeah. cut the alien dog's paw, <laughs> that paw is a sentient and autonomous creature unto itself at that point yeah basically um and uh it, which is really interesting and, and weird and just like uh, another uh you know content warning for viewers of these movies that we're sending out to watch these these are very unfortunate movies for dogs like that that was yeah. by far the hardest part for me watching the especially the john carpenter one was just like I, I, I hate seeing dogs hurt or in pain or die or anything like that. And yeah. there are some some very unfortunate things that happen to dogs in that movie. Um, There's a scene but, uh, uh, where yeah. in the kennel and the thing. So, and also I, I want to say that the uh, that the dog that they are, that is originally the thing when it first comes into their camp, the dog is a good actor. It's a really yeah. good acting dog. Uh, I believe John Carpenter himself said that he thought that dog was a great actor. It just behaved like it knew it was on a movie. 
there's a scene yeah. where it, it, it's like walking down a, like a hallway and it's like looking in different rooms like it looks you know it looks like a curious sentient yeah. alien is inside that dog it's it's uh so lucky that they found and it's a, it's a siberian husky right is that the dog breed? i, I think so uh, uh, yeah it's definitely a sled dog but yeah the scene that really bothered me is yeah dude i uh, any kind of harm coming to a dog in a movie it really bums me out, and this movie has it, and it and it's and it's really, really, especially bad in the the kennel scene because they put the the stray dog in, which is not a dog at all. It you know it explodes into a, you know the creature effects monstrosity of tentacles and shit that, and it's trying to uh, it's basically trying to kill all the other dogs. But I don't know why this bothered me more than even it killing the other dogs was when uh, one of the one of the characters the I don't know who was the one that fired the weapon but one of the dogs has already has a tentacle on it and you know the dog you, you know the dog is done for but he shoots the dog and the dog gives out a yelp and I was like ow I was like my heart I was like oh <laughs> I, I I can't can't take this you know but I you know it's a horror film dude it's not supposed to make you feel cuddly and good and this is also one of the most nihilistic even for John Carpenter, this might be the most nihilistic film he ever made. And he made yeah. Halloween, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is bleak. Um, but so segueing back to the blood test scene. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it, it's uh, so the blood in the Petri dish is, is interacting as if it's the, its own organism. So they heat up a copper wire and then they put it in the blood, um, expecting some sort of reaction from the blood to like get away from the copper wire. And, um, and so they've, they've drawn blood from all of the different people and they're, who are all tied up and, um, and they're going through them like one by one. And McCready, you know, uh, Kurt Russell's character um, is, you know, heating up this wire, dipping in the blood, heating up the wire, dipping in the blood. And Clark was human, huh? Which makes you a murderer, don't it? Palmer now. This is pure nonsense. Doesn't prove a thing. I thought you'd feel that way, Gary. You were the only one that could have got to that blood. We'll do you last. The people are feel pretty real in the sense that they are making mistakes and they're very flawed characters. Yeah. Um, but and so he goes through each one of those things, and then you know finally he hits like uh, the vial that just absolutely explodes, and the blood like goes everywhere as it's trying to escape this hot wire. Uh, that thing knows that you know he's been discovered, so he starts to transform into his whole like big like monster character like version and, and, or whatever and what i thought was crazy. cool with this is it really was the guy you expected the least it's almost always the next person that is actually the thing you weren't expecting and but yeah in this scene in particular which i also agree with you this is probably the best scene in the film i, I think he really drew from uh, alfred hitchcock a lot in this uh when you're yeah. saying that it's a this is this movie is also suspense Right. Yeah. And because, you know, like Hitchcock, uh, his his famous uh, discussion on suspense versus action, uh, which I think is pretty relevant to, to this movie is um, he talks about how, you know, if you if you put a bomb under a table and you have two people sitting at the table eating a meal and then the bomb blows up, then the audience is going to get this really strong shock of, of like, oh, you know, crap, that bomb blew up and killed these people. And you get that really intense momentary, you know, shock. But um, that's a little bit less impactful than if you put the bomb under the table, show the audience the bomb, and then those two characters have like a five minute discussion on other things about them. 
their life and hum they get humanized. And and uh, the John Carpenter does a great job of that throughout this entire movie with, you are so uncomfortable throughout this entire time and, and you never know which table the bomb's under, but you know that people that you care, characters that you care about are sitting next to it and it's gonna explode. And so, so yeah, so this one, uh, this scene had was just infused with tension, and then, and then of um, course, you know, everything goes crazy once the action starts going. Speaking of bombs, uh, in the in the, this is the scene that leads up to the one that you just uh, described, but it's also one of the best scenes in the movie, and this is where they all they all start to suspect McCready, uh, Kurt Russell, as being. They're like, oh, he's the thing. He's then they have all the circumstantial evidence. They cut the rope. He's out in a in a blizzard storm in antarctica and they cut the rope on him so he wouldn't be able to find his way back to base camp he gets back anyway he breaks in through a window and they all come in to shoot him and when they come in he's got a bundle of dynamite with a fuse <laughs> and he has a lit flare and he's like anybody comes fucking near me i'm lighting up this dynamite and we all die anyone messes with me and the whole camp goes come on child burn me those torches on the floor and back off. Back off. Way off. You asshole. You have done the same thing. Don't argue with him. That is hardcore. That is that is hardcore old Kurt Russell, man. And <laughs> and I this is the this is one of the things that was nostalgic about this film for me is when I was a little kid, I thought Kurt Russell was the shit. And especially speaking of, you know, John Carpenter, I really think helped launch so much of Kurt Russell's career because he was in uh, Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., The Thing. When some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall, and he looks you crooked in the eye, and he asks you if you've paid your dues. You just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir. The check is in the mail. It's, uh, like a lot of monster movies, you know, it, like they kind of hide the monster for right. one reason or another. Uh, they do it a lot in the 2011 because it's a CGI Resident <laughs> Evil monster, and it's scarier if you don't show it too much. Uh, but you know, John Carpenter and, uh, you know, the people that he worked with and the artists, uh, the effects, uh, they're proud of what they've made. And they're like, we're just going to we're going to show you everything, even the things that are silly and stupid. Uh, this, the scene. So the, the, not this entire scene, but it, there's there's the part that's the, the the horrifying body horror where the guy is uh, he's he has uh, a defibrillator and he's trying to oh, yeah. he's trying to perform a defibrillation on one of his friends. And right when he puts his hands down, the guy's entire chest turns into a giant gaping mouth full of <laughs> razor sharp teeth and bites his arms off. And uh, I don't know. I don't even recall how this happens, but somehow they chop off that guy's head. And then that guy's head right. turns into a, a spider. It's like a yeah. head with spider legs running across the floor. I don't think this was meant to be scary because it's fucking stupid. And like, <laughs> but I, I think I, that's the thing. I think John Carpenter he knows how to not take himself too seriously a lot because he, you know, he's, he right. makes a lot of B horror movies. He's like, here, let's have fun. <laughs> yeah. And it's really interesting. Um, uh, a couple of things about that. First, the, uh, that combination of pushing horror to the point where it's funny 
is um, like that comes up in my own writing uh, pretty frequently. And it's it's interesting how there are not very many people that that resonates well with, fewer than I would hope, uh, because it, it really breaks the tension of the actual uh, scary part, which a lot of people that are going to horror look for. Like I wrote this story that ended up getting published um, where the, um, long story short, but a woman was uh, turning into a spider um, and they were on this construction site. And um, the, uh, <laughs> she, in the, in, the, in the story that I wrote, which the editor ended up uh, taking qualms with and we made some edits that I wasn't the biggest fan of, but um, she ended up, or she birthed, her name was Brenda. And mm -hmm. she was um, like a spider that um, had like a, a human face because she started out as like a human character. And um, it was super creepy and weird. And then she had like this egg sack on her back and like thousands <laughs> of little uh, baby spiders came out of it. And they all they looked the same with Brenda's little face. And like she was she was such a such an asshole, like and sarcastic in the beginning of the story. And um, and so you have all these little tiny baby Brenda's that are like. Uh, this the main characters hiding in a closet and they're like peeking up under the door and it's just it pushes it to the point where it's just ridiculous in a way that made me laugh a lot but yeah clearly the, the editor was like not on board with it so the final version of the story that actually came out uh all the baby brandos were cut so that the uh, the tension could be maintained and and the what, the part you were talking about kind of feels similar to me in the sense that um you do break the tension a little bit when you get a bit silly, but there's something really fun about that too, in, in a way that that I personally enjoy. And a lot of people that like the B horror stuff tends to. Well, first of all, I got to read this story. But yeah. All, yeah, what you're saying with the uh, with the spider head in the in the film, mm -hmm. I think there even is a line. Whoever whoever had the flamethrower, I think it might have been McCready. I think he actually says like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Before he lights it on fire, <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but dude, I, I want to jump back uh, to the the other scene that we were kind of agreeing it was like the second. The, I guess like for some reason we're choosing scenes that are not action scenes as some of the like, <laughs> some of the more like yeah like with the more Hitchcock inspired yeah. or uh, not so much I guess the final scene that's just just extremely nihilistic uh, mm -hmm. and dark and and it really makes you feel the cold. Mm -hmm. And this is after you know kind of the final battle has all has been waged. And, you know, pretty much everyone's dead. We got Keith David. Uh, he's still alive. I keep calling him Keith David. I need to look at that character's name. I... <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, Childs. That's... Childs. Okay. By the way, Keith David is fantastic in this. I love him as an actor. I would say my, my favorite thing Keith David has ever done. He was in Community. And he's, mm. such, a, he's such a great comedic actor. But in this movie, he's not, he's not trying to be funny. He's just, he's just a hardcore dude. Who wants to kill McCready? Like him and McCready don't get along, <laughs> and of course they end up being the last two surviving people. And for all we know, one of them is the thing. It's because they've been separated. But they're in Antarctica. There's no generators. There's no power. There's no fire. There's nothing. It's night. It's winter. So we're looking at uh, absolute certain death by uh, hypothermia is is upon them, and they're just sharing a bottle of whiskey. And and they both don't trust each other, and but I love the the Kurt Russell line. You know, he's he's like he's like, hey, you know, like he's like, I know we still got some shit to work out, but he's like, I have a feeling neither, neither one of us have enough left in us to do anything about it. He's like, so what do you want to do? And he's like, I don't know. I figure we'll just sit here, wait a while, and see what happens. And so <laughs> they just sit there to 
to drink whiskey and slowly freeze to death. Yep. If you're worried about me, if we've got any surprises for each other, I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. What a, what a nihilistic scene, but also so, <laughs> so well done. And some of the best acting in the movie, of course, two, two of the best actors in the movie are, are left. I feel like we've really left Wilford Brimley, sadly, out of a lot of our discussion so far, but uh, we'll get back to him when we, when we get to acting. But hey, man, let's do uh, uh, favorite scenes, The Thing, 2011. Yeah. Um... So for me, one of my favorite parts about uh, the 2011 um, was because each each one, the the novella and then John Carpenter's and then the 2011, they all take slightly different texts on figuring out what the thing is and they have their own tests and everything. Um, so I, I really liked um, the scenes that revolved around that um, <clears throat> where uh, basically um, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead's character uh, is- um, Kate. Uh, Kate, okay, so uh, she um, figures out that um, like people, anything that's implanted in the body, like a, you know, like a, a surgical implant or fillings, um, they, those inorganic pieces, the, the thing can't actually replicate. And so um, you, there's one- Oh, scene. dude, can I guess, are you gonna do the teeth fillings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just, I, I just wanted to jump into that because I feel like, once again, I couldn't agree with you more on what you're selecting for uh, some of the best plot devices and <laughs> scenes. Okay, I'm out. I'm, out, I'm back out. I'm, ba I'm bowing. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So they they have a um, a big scene similar to uh, the wire the wire and the blood petri dishes where um, where Kate is uh, trying to figure out who is uh, one of the things or or is likely to be one of the things, and um, she's got a flamethrower and she's basically got like the whole room, this whole room of men like hostage. And uh, she's figured out that the thing can't replicate uh, anything inorganic. And so, and nobody trusts anybody, which is like the, one of the central themes of, of both of these movies. But um, so she has a flashlight and shines it in her mouth. And it's like, I have feelings. I am not one of the things. Let's go around and, and check each one of you. And so like the, uh, she goes around to each of the guys and they're like, Now tell Lars, to open his mouth. Huh? Tell him to open his mouth. Open up your mouth, Good. Now, Lars has feelings. So he's human. It can't imitate inorganic material. Kind of crazy, you know, like blue collar um, uh, Norwegian, like scientist guy or slash labor guys uh, open their mouths. Of course, they they're just like covered with silver fillings that are very clearly distinguishing them as not the thing. So they get segregated off to one side of the room. And then the like real like asshole scientist guy um, is uh, does not uh, have any sort of uh, discernible fillings. Although he, um, <laughs> he blames uh, it on having porcelain fillings, which yeah. was funny for me watching it. Cause like, I, you know, like I have a little bit of pretentious scientist in me and I have ceramic fillings and so i would have totally been on the wrong side of that <laughs> oh yeah you could have totally been innocent and you're like ah shit i didn't uh, get 
I didn't get metal <laughs> fillings. <laughs> I know. Yeah. What a mistake. <laughs> um, so I thought that that was really cool. And um, I also like, it was, it was a super flawed method, right? Like, so she was able to um, kind of pull aside basically half of the group and say, you, you are not the thing uh, because of this particular reason, but that left half of the group that was uh, innocent or not innocent, but still had the potential of being the thing. And so it was very imprecise, um, which I actually kind of liked that it was an incomplete method and that helped to carry some of the tension forward. And um, like I was saying with um, McCready in the previous one, like that element of making the wrong decision when you're just killing people because you think that they're uh, an enemy is one of the more interesting and subtle uh, tension pieces in this. And so that kind of maintained a little bit of that sense through through this scene before everything kind of opens up and explodes. And just to, just to annoy you a little bit, that and then the earring scene, but uh, I think you probably <laughs> wanted to talk about that oh, one. Oh, no, you, you, go, you go ahead. I, I also, the earring scene on, on multiple levels, do I think that is a great scene in a film? And okay, <laughs> I might so, I might uh, add a little bit of my own just spins on it after you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll I'll sketch it in, and then you can you can fill in some of the better uh, better parts. So, um, so at the very end, you know, and this has been the tr the the kind of mechanism that uh, Kate has been using to determine whether people were the thing or not. But you get to the very end, and it's her and. Uh, Joel Eg uh, Egerton's character um, in the snowcat at the very end, and you know they've they've escaped from the ship which they've blown up, and um, and so this is like their their opportunity for salvation. Discuss they're talking in the thing and in the snowcat, and uh, she notices that he actually instead of uh, he's had his ear pierced throughout the entire thing, and you know as anybody who from a slightly older generation will know like. You're supposed to have one side of your, or in the 90s, uh, you were supposed to have like one side of your ears uh, pierced. Uh, like that had uh, uh, quite a bit of social commentary on who you are as a person. Yeah. And, and so she notices that um, his earring is actually uh, missing. And then he like reaches up to touch uh, where it should be. And he actually touches the wrong side. And she's like, bro, you're, you're still the yeah. thing. And then she torches him. And, you know, in the process, torches the snowcat, which is her potential for salvation. And, um, and, and like, just, you know, it's like, whatever we, we have to, uh, she has a little bit of the McCready in the sense and, and the other scientists in the sense that being willing to self-sacrifice in order to keep the thing from spreading across the entire globe, because it is like an existential threat to humanity, which they, get into I think in both of them but I specifically remember the 1982 scene where they're, they're they have like a computer making projections on how fast the thing will just take over the entire planet and it's like this huge existential threat and so people are willing to like sacrifice themselves and like go down with it and so and she realizes that you know she uh, that it's not safe to bring him back with her because he's probably the thing and then torches him and her own vehicle on the way out and decides to freeze to death so yeah, no, great scene. Great, great fucking scene. <laughs> I would have noticed it too, especially if I had been alive and an adult at that time and been like, why did your earring, I would have noticed, <laughs> I would have been like, your earring's in the wrong ear. It was ubiquitous yeah. back then, you know, and having been, you know, a, a boy with an earring in the 90s, it was like ubiquitous, you know, it was like, you either pierce both your ears or just your left ear. And that's just like, it, it's, 
Uh, same thing with watches. Everybody, you know, watch goes on your left arm. And it's, it's even like an idiosyncrasy. I, I kind of like, I mean, I don't wear any kind of jewelry of any sort anymore, but for the longest time, like, so I had, you know, I would only adorn the left side of my body. So it's just the kind of thing I would really <laughs> notice. I had, you know, an earring in my left ear. I would only wear a watch on my left arm. I would only wear bracelets on my left arm. I only have a tattoo on my left arm. So I don't, <laughs> it might be personal to me, but I feel like they're, yeah, like you said, uh, for millennials, a lot who are going to really like the earring catch that she does, it doesn't seem far-fetched or like that it's a minute detail. You'd be like, oh no, she would have caught that, especially in that time period. Yeah, it was a big identity uh, thing, signal to uh, to other people. And uh, everybody was very aware of that. So it, yeah. Can I bring up a, a, a Joel Edgerton scene that you wouldn't think I would bring this up as a as a great scene, but I, I like what it, what it does. It's a great plot device to show that he's a good guy. And so late, so and it, that's all, it's also a way, you know, it hurts at the end when she flame throws him, you know, you're <laughs> like, oh man, I really, I was, there's ships in the night, you know? Cause you really, yeah. you, you kind of hope you're like, maybe this, this scientist is going to end up with this rough around the edges helicopter pilot, you know, maybe there's a chance, but alas, his earring was the wrong ear. She lit him up, uh, yeah. <laughs> but there's a scene. So uh, when she's, when he's flying them into base camp and he turns around and he sees her and he's like, oh, she's an American. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, turns around and tells her to put her headphones on so that uh, she can hear him over the rotors. And he's like, excuse me, I have a problem. I have a question I want to ask you. And so you immediately, you think, oh, this guy's going to hit on her. It's going to be awkward and cringy. I almost, you know, I thought it was going to be one of those just movie tropes where he's like, hey, uh, you know, and tries to like hit on her. And then she shuts him down hardcore. And she's like, I'm not that kind of girl. You know, like <laughs> they they set you up for that kind of trope and i'm like ugh, this is terrible but in, and then instead and you and you have to remember you know because they this filmed this in 2011 but this is, is supposed to be 1981 because this would have been the year before the 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 uh got john carpenter film for this to be the prequel this would have had to have been the previous season so or i guess this could have been or 82 this, it's it's yeah, summer 82 I think it was the same season just before. But okay, so, so so yeah, it's eighty two. But yeah, yeah. but, but uh, what I realized is like these people don't have iPhones, they don't have internet, all this stuff. So when he and he's a huge fan of what is he a fan of the Lakers or the Clippers? Yes, or the Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's an. I think he's a fan of the Clippers. He's a. Okay. Anyway, it's a. He turns around. And he's like. He's like. Hey, I have a problem up here i can't get a newspaper that's uh uh not old that's not at least three weeks old and he's like can you please tell me like what's going on with the clippers right now because he's like a huge sports fan it also humanizes him you're like oh okay cool he loves the clippers that's you know and also he's not being fucking yeah and, uh the the scene i was gonna bring up uh i i do agree with you the 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 cg is a little bit less than i would like it to be at times uh and the scene that I'm about to bring up relies really heavily on the CG. However, doesn't ruin the scene for me. I still think it's one of the greatest scenes in the movie. Uh, this is this is after the point. This is when originally when people are still not listening to Kate. She's like, "There's clearly we, you know, there's an infection. This thing can uh, mimic. You know, I have this. She's already got the science behind it. She's already went is in the lab. It could be anyone. No one believes her. <clears throat> there's one other woman on the entire uh, research station." Uh, her name is Juliet in the film. She's played by Kim Bubbs. And she's like, hey, look, I believe you. And as a matter of fact, I saw someone doing some shady shit that uh, 
and I I have access to all the keys to everything in the in this uh, facility to help you you know do, do your plan. And she's like, great, show me. So she of course takes her to this isolated <laughs> weird shed room where uh, Kate turns her back, starts fumbling through the keys, and she's like, how many keys are there? And she's like, there's five. And she goes and she's like, there's only four keys. And then you just then you just hear her going oh <laughs> and like this <laughs> disturbing awful moan and you turn around and her body has split into once again, kind of like uh, the scene with the defibrillator in eight in eighty two, her body is mostly a mouth, and she's like split into her head's hanging off on one side, moaning. She's mostly teeth. Uh, Kate goes, takes a run for it. She runs, you know, she's running. Some scientist sticks his head out. He's like, "What's going on?" She's like, "Run!" <laughs> and he's, you know, he's too fucking doofus to do it. You know, he just before he can, you know, get his mind around what run means. He sits there in this uh, giant gaping mouth with this woman's head hanging off the side of it, you know, chomps him to pieces. And that's when, you know, the first time they bust out the flamethrower in this film. Once again, I love that the, they took the flamethrowers and they made that an absolute because the flamethrowers are s such an important part of the first movie. And so the, they stay true and flamethrowers are it is the number one weapon. It's the only real weapon that humans use against this creature is flamethrowers. It's the first flamethrower that gets used. Whole scene, fucking awesome. Tons of action. CG's fine, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, that was uh, that was fun. That that one really, uh, it felt more like the like a successful iteration of the monster romp, you know, because like monsters out in the open, running, you know, tearing people up, and uh, yeah, it's 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 wild. I thought that they did a good job with that one as well. All right, man. Well, now comes the part where we have to be a little bit harsh on these films we love. But this is a head-to-head, -head, dude, and we are, I mean, it's a versus. Like we said, it's it's 82 versus, versus uh, 2011. So, man, if, if you don't mind, if you want to kick it off uh, if, with sure, criticisms yeah. for uh, The Thing, 1982. Yeah, so for me, um, like... Well, I, I really, I enjoy the 1982 version a whole lot. Um, one of the interesting uh, parts about its reception was like, cause it, it flopped like pretty hard. Like it was really poorly critically received and, and everything else. Um, it actually, it and, actually uh, damaged John Carpenter's career uh, immensely. Yeah, he immensely. lost his deal with Universal over this film. Yeah. And, um, and I like people were like freaking out in theaters cause it was such a visceral body horror. And, and very much ahead of its time in that regard. Like we're a little bit desensitized now, but, but it, it was like, people were like losing their minds, like running out of the theater and like throwing up and like all kinds of craziness. And, um, <laughs> and it, yeah, <laughs> well, hopefully they ran out instead of throwing up in the theater. Cause that would be way worse even than the sticky popcorn. But, I think, yeah, I think this came out the same year as E.T. too. So people were like, right. they're like oh, E.T., oh, aliens are fun. Alien and then they go see this shit and it's like the most gory, uh, depressing, yeah. no redeeming. <laughs> Everything, right? And um, and so, so anyway, so it was, it was pretty much panned as, you know, just like, oh, it's just a, it's a blood fest. It's like, 
over the top. The only reason that you go see this is to like compete with your friends to see who could, you know, keep from closing their eyes or whatever. And, um, and so, um, so yeah, so it's, it, it was really interesting how, um, how that part was received and I've gotten a little bit off of my own track, but, um, but anyway, circling back to the, the criticism that I had for it, um, because they connect at some point and we'll get back there. But um, I think that that one of the things that led to people walking away with that impression uh, was that it lacked a satisfying conclusion in any sense. And, and that was, I mean, it's fun, especially uh, viewing it as like a classic and kind of like an artistic uh, film, like that sense of dread and lack of fulfillment is very much an artistic choice that John Carpenter was making and was very much succeeding at, like it really leaves you with that uh, discomfort because the entire movie is just like awfully discomfort, the, discomforting yeah. the entire time. Like you are like grossed out and your skin is crawling and like horrified, like pretty much the whole time, super tense. Um, and, and so I think it was one of his, a real artistic choice of his to leave it with so much ambiguity and, um, and such a lack of satisfaction. And there's definitely something to be said for having movies that are not satisfying. Uh, but at the same time, if you really commit to saying something, which is harder and you lose um, a degree of flexibility when you let go of that obfuscation, even if we, if, even if you wanted us to be dissatisfied, if he had like really committed to um, an ending in uh, the narrative itself, you know, instead of leaving all of the doors <laughs> wide open, I think that that would have probably engendered a greater response from the audience and made it a more efficient tool for communicating and getting his messages and the feelings that he was intending. So that would be my primary criticism for yeah. Aside from some plot holes and, and all that. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are some plot holes that can't be denied, but that's actually not where I'm going to like, <laughs> uh, you already knew I was going to do this uh, with my main criticism. And because I, and that's part of the reason I thought that, you know, you were going to be a great co-host for this as well. You have spent a lot of time uh, on snowy mountains. <laughs> uh, yeah. You've been in very, very cold environments for long periods of time. You know, uh, the importance of gear and the importance mm -hmm. of what you're, you know, the clothing that you wear. And this is, I hate to say this, it sounds like I'm nitpicking, but I'm not because you know, part of what the vibe of the film is that it's so cold. They're like, we're in Antarctica. We're always cold at the very end. They're like, the survivors don't survive because they freeze to death. They even go as far as to tell you what the temperature is. He's like, he's like, it's going to be 40 degrees below zero tonight, you know, and yet, with all that, we have so many scenes with Kurt Russell wearing a thin bomber jacket and like khaki pants, like just walking around Antarctica dressed like that. <laughs> and so many of these other guys also wearing uh, abs absurdly underdressed for that kind of, I mean, that's the kind of weather that freezes you to the bone. I mean, you, you, lose, you lose fingers, you lose your nose, your ears. Very quickly, yeah. Very quickly too. It's not just like, oh, I'm cold. You know, I've been very cold. I've been very, very cold before. Uh, but not. I've never been Antarctica cold. And so, yeah, I, I hate to have to be the guy to say this, but I guess the costume department, and you know, it's you know, they gave uh, McCready a cool outfit. He looks like a cool dude, especially for the 1980s and that style. Right. But sadly, that is not how you dress in Antarctica. Maybe like indoors. 
indoors, you could dress like that, but he's, he spends so much time outdoors and, and his hat, his winter hat is literally <laughs> like a giant, like Canadian Mountie, uh, like silly, like almost, it's almost like a cowboy hat, sombrero, uh, <laughs> hybrid. The point is he would need to be wearing like something with like ear flaps, you know, <laughs> like right. it's, uh, yeah, so costume department really dropped the ball on what people wear in antarctica right well even more than the costume department i I would imagine it was probably a choice by the producers because like you get this hollywoodification right like where like you you start with the novella which um everybody is like bundled and they talk about you know they're wearing like that bright orange like puffy arctic wear that's like legitimately what scientists would wear when they're in extremely cold temperatures and uh, like that's seated all through the novella. Like it's very accurate in that regard. And then you go to um, the 1982 version and like they've stripped out like a lot of that in order for it to be more visually appealing to their audience, you know, where they don't want everybody in like super huge parkas all the time. Kurt Russell needs to be like flexing his star power and like yeah. all of that kind of stuff or whatever. And so they strip down the layers uh, quite a bit. And then, and then that only continues forward into uh, the 2011. The, the scene that I remember the most for, for this particular part was the uh, the first time that they go into base camp. And um, like in the 1982 version, they're wearing kind of preposterous thin clothing, but you can tell that the pants have like a little bit of insulation. Like they have a little bit of that puff, like you see when people are doing recreational snowboarding where like yeah, it's got yeah, a little yeah. bit of insulation, yeah, for but sure. it's not not appropriate for Antarctica, but it's, <laughs> by, you know- By any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Exactly. But you might see it at a ski resort. And then uh, in the first uh, like shot in Antarctica in 2011, uh, a lot of the scientists are wearing basically skinny jeans where like you can, the fabric is straight, uh, which means like there is like no insulation in there. It's like a single layer, a single wall layer, right? And like with this, those kind of temperatures, you would be toast like super fast. Like there, it, w- it would there, burn. It would feel as though you were burning. That's how cold, yeah. like the, the kind of cold ex- experience is like. Oh, yeah, it, it, it's it's super awful. Like unless you're, uh, like for me, it, it was it was interesting. My the background that we've alluded to a couple of times being that um, I just recently uh, w- hiked the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada, and so you're going across the mountaintops all the way from. Mexico to Canada and you go through the high Sierras and you know you're like 13,000 feet in the in the um, elevation uh, sitting around 12,000 all the time and it was freaking enormously freezing there like um, and and any exposed skin would immediately start to burn um, we were one one particular day probably my coldest day on trail we we're going up to uh, Mather Pass 12,000 feet the wind is just absolutely howling and I was, I literally had cloth covering every inch of my skin, except for just like the tip of my nose, because I couldn't get the, um, the, whenever I'd have the, uh, I had a buff that was wrapped around my face. And anytime that it was um, covering my nose, all the air would go down and it would saturate the buff with the uh, moisture from my uh, breathing. And then that would make it even more cold. So I had to have my nose out, totally got frostbit on my nose, frostbit, uh, frost nip on my nose. Like it, it just Ugh. like, blistered and burned and it was red and it swelled it swelled out to like one and a half times its size like it was so awful like the the entire time throughout that whole thing and it got down to like zero that particular night and it was just like or near zero at least and it was just it was abominably cold but 
Um, but that was like, that's like still positive temperatures, you know, like yeah. that's not yeah. you know, negative 40, right? Like that's, uh, when you get down to those levels, that's, it's, it, it just gets insane. I have family in uh, Washington or in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And um, my mom tells stories about uh, how she would go out from the shower uh, with wet hair to go to work and your hair would freeze immediately to where like if you were getting into the car and you brushed it, it would snap chunks off. That's like insane. Just, <laughs> no, it's insane. And and there it gets similar. Like she she talks about it getting down to about negative 40 Fahrenheit there. But uh, but yeah, that kind of cold, it's like a whole other world and it kind of has its own rules and physics and like uh, which a lot of the general audience probably wouldn't be able to relate to. And they'll probably give these kind of details a little bit of a pass, but if you're going for like actual authentic Arctic wear, like yeah, it's a, it's a little lacking in the Hollywood version. And that's, I mean, you, I think you just hit the nail on the head right there when you said Hollywood that these films, you know, these are, well, actually, I don't know much about Matthias and he might actually be from Norway and have experienced, you know, a good bit of cold, but you know, these are Hollywood films and Hollywood is in Southern California where you would never ever experience anything like this. And maybe you're just, it just maybe it's just slipped their mind that like the you know people like us are going to watch this and it's at times i'm taken out of the movie i'm like i'm watching it and i'm like dude put on a parka <laughs> like, <laughs> what um, are you doing <laughs> we need you need to have fingers in order to do the tests to solve where which person yeah. is the thing come on uh i i and i just i don't want to be i do not want to go in tearing it apart because like I said, I mean, uh, the 1982, uh, the thing 1982, uh, does such a great job of, uh, showing you that, you know, this is just a group of kind of blue collar guys, uh, you know, the paranoia builds and they all start turning on each other and it's just, you know, and there is the sadness and freakiness of all that. But I, I feel like they don't bother to explain to me what, what exactly what are some of these guys even doing there? I mean, like, for instance, you got the one guy, his entire job is that he runs, a, he operates a CB radio. You wouldn't need a person to, that's, that, that that's their sole job. That His name is Windows, uh, played by Thomas G. Waits. Uh, Windows is probably also maybe my least favorite character. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, that's kind of like, that's, he's not a, he's not a, a research scientist. What is he doing there? He literally just works the radio that doesn't even work. They can't even contact people. It's a kind of a bizarre job. They got the guy. It makes a little more sense. They have a cook that's Nalls, and he was played by uh, TK Carter. I actually, I grow to like Nalls more throughout the film, but in the beginning, his whole thing is he, he roller skates, which I found to just suck. I just, I didn't, I didn't like that. That was his thing is that he was a, he liked that. He, you know, was wearing an apron and roller skating through the facility. I was like, this is uh this is, silly in a way that i don't think it was intended i don't like like the like the, the head with the spider legs silly on purpose the cook that roller skates i almost like i was like do you guys think this is uh how someone would actually act <laughs> right a uh, couple other characters i just thought weren't super necessary i mean but i guess gotta, gotta have somebody to blow up i guess right and like uh... But, and, but you're, I, I agree that they were all really reduced down to kind of well, very cardboard, you know, archetypal roles, you know, as opposed to being fleshed out people, which is, 
interesting because the the main characters also have more flaws in um, in the 1982 one, I think, as well. Um, yeah. The I don't know if you're familiar with the term plot armor. No. Uh, okay, so basically, um, it with a main character in in, in a creative work. Um, because they're the center of the plot, a lot of the time they really kind of have this plot armor where you pretty much know that they're going to make it through. You know, like uh, with, you kind of feel it with Mary Elizabeth Weinstead a little bit in the 2011 where, you know, like stuff's blowing up and she's the only one that's like not getting eaten. Kurt Russell kind of falls into this a little bit too. But um, but there's that uh, there's that sense that they, they're going to be okay because they're the, the focus character until the end, obviously. And the, yeah. the, this is one of the, the few movies that actually breaks with that to the extent that they'll kill their perspective characters. But most of the time, uh, they, they won't. Um, but, but anyway, the, um, in the 1982 one, uh, the main characters like Kurt, Kurt Russell, like he's pretty flawed. Like he's a bit of a dick. He, he, this is on uh, uh, Norway quite a bit, I think. Uh, yeah, in, I forget, we didn't even bring that up. It's one of my favorite <laughs> yeah. things about him is his absurd. He absurdly hates Norwegian and Swedish people, and it's never explained why. I mean, we we get the impression that he's a Vietnam veteran uh, because of the time period and the way he dresses. He looks like he still wears some of his like uh, some of the, the uh, clothing that was issued to him in the war, and he you know he might have a little bit of PTSD. But the fact that he hates Norwegians and then <laughs> Swedes what <laughs> yeah like it was because he keeps referring to the norwegians as swedes throughout the entire thing right like he just yeah. doesn't care that yeah. what where they're actually from whatsoever but so like he's a bit of a dick you know like and he clearly makes bad decisions like killing a dude that was not the thing and and everything else so which is pretty good character work in terms of um, making them feel like more complete characters which is interesting because carpenter also decided to really flatten the side characters, um, you know, like Windows and and uh, and Nulls to a degree where they have like like one defining element, but not a full personality. Yeah. Um, they're mainly there to be part of the source of tension and fodder and have something for the thing to eat or to have Kurt Russell kill or, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it, it's interesting how uh, that dichotomy runs where the 1982 has both of those I feel like the 2011 um, probably has a little bit more of a center in those where the main character isn't very flawed uh, at all, it, but um, but the other ones don't feel as boiled down to a specific trait. So that's yeah, an interesting sure. point to bring up. And I guess uh, one thing that I, this is not a criticism, it's actually, it's one of the things, it's one of the plot devices in the 2011 that I thought was really good. And that's, uh, Ulrich Thompson's character is uh he's the he's the billionaire doctor that puts the whole thing into into place and you know I, I, like I said to you before what I liked so much about that is that the blame lies almost solely on a narcissistic billionaire and that is so fucking real to me it's more real to me than than a monster than the monster you know because it could have been anything they could have found something in the ice and when he makes that decision where he's like oh i'm going to drill into this uh, i'm not wearing a hazmat suit we're not taking any precautions we're just going to drill into the ice even after the scientists are like hey man you don't know what kind of biological hazards you might be exposing us to and he's like ah i'm a billionaire and it just you know it's like how when elon musk when when those kids were trapped in that cave and he wanted to build like a tesla submarine and when people called him stupid he started calling the 
the guy that was the he the soccer coach a pedophile because just as he was mad lashing out because yeah. he's like a giant you know billionaire child mm-hmm. as you can tell I, I don't uh much care for billionaires <laughs> anyway i just thought it was it was uh great it was it was great that the uh that um that uh ulrich thompson is you know the, it's the billionaire's fault it's a yeah. it's a good it's a good good plot device that really really works for me i know we're, we're yeah. in the criticism section but i'm bringing up the <laughs> yeah no no and and that that it was really aimed i think to appeal to that sensibility that you were just describing in the sense that there is a, a villain to hate uh so there's a monster that romps and and a villain <laughs> to hate it, yeah. it's really built to be a much more satisfying movie as opposed to the 1982 one where there's no real villain you know even like when uh, i think that they get into it a little bit like the the thing is more of its own character it's not like in the 2011 it's more like a like a force of nature like a you yeah. know crazy monster violence thing in 2000 uh in the 1982 version it, it's more of a character that's trying to like sneak around and it's intelligent and you know almost a little bit scared of being uh, discovered you know it's trying to like preserve itself through this situation that it wasn't able to escape originally because you know that's how it ended up in this mess anyway it's crashed its ship into antarctica and got frozen and so it doesn't want to get um frozen again you know it needs a, a portal out to the outside world where it can actually flourish and so it's being more hesitant it's being more cautious um and then of course like the novella was even more of that you know but but so so you don't really have like a, an antagonist to hate um even even the thing really and um, and it's part of what lends itself to that non-satisfyingness. And I think they really corrected for that, um, maybe a little bit too far in, in my personal perspective, uh, but I think a lot of people would disagree with me in terms of making 2011 feel much more satisfying by having uh, hateable protagonists and the thing is kind of like black and white, evil, unthinking monster. And, you know, everything's kind of, a lot easier in that regard and um and so i i'm totally on board with that really pretty fun and easy to hate the billionaire you know asshole uh who's also a patriarchal uh guy who's like you know being a dick to our main character uh all that kind of stuff like it was yeah that's well that's that's why i had the gall to uh (laughs) to even suggest that we do this comparison uh you know a lot of people be like how dare you uh suggest that there's a film uh, prequel remake whatever you want to call it uh, of a John Carpenter film that you know that dares to be uh questioned hey man I'm questioning because like I thought 2011 it's a fun film super fun <laughs> yeah. uh I uh, also I would say this this is a little off topic but it's just, it's another it's with the Halloween um franchise and I thought that when Rob Zombie took over to do the two Halloween films. I thought those were spectacular. I think those are maybe at least, certainly the first the the first one of those two is probably my favorite of all the Halloween movies. So I know that's also maybe a bit of a blasphemy for some people. I love Rob Zombie and I love him as a director and I you know I think everything he, everything he touches seems to turn to gold. We'll see with this Monsters movie he's coming out with. It's his first PG movie. So I think what it was is I started just praising it again in the middle of the criticism yeah. section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So um, 
so for me, well, there were, there were, I mean, similar potholes to the, the original or whatever too. And, and some unbelievable science, which ends up irking me um, just as a personal pet peeve or whatever, like with, uh, so they, they pull the creature out of the ice. They like cut a big block of ice out or whatever. And they bring the ice back to, uh, you know, their base. And so you have this creature that's fully encased in a block of ice. And, um, and so uh, you get the scene where people are talking in the ice room and there's like a jump scare, but nothing happens. And, um, and then they're like exiting the room and they're looking back over their shoulder and like, this is the, the place where I think John Carpenter would have like made like some little motion in the ice, like, you know, a little twitch or something. Um, but instead, yeah. uh, they, it just explodes out of the ice. Like the creature is like fully awake and active and, you know, leaps out of the ice and, and like goes on this big rampage, which makes no sense scientifically. Like if, if the ice is still ice temperature, and the creature is inactive at ice temperature. And it's got this little pilot hole that's been drilled down into it. Th just from a thermogenic perspective, the creature's body temperature couldn't have come up enough to give it that amount of uh, capacity for movement and activity uh, without the rest of the ice having melted. And it's still fully encased in ice. Okay, so you're, I'm going off onto a side. You're absolutely head, but... right. You're absolutely right. That is a fucking plot hole. I think uh, I, I think I overlooked it because it's it 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 occurs in a jump scare that is yeah. overshadowed by a jump scare. So right because uh, <laughs> uh, the the one guy the the helicopter co-pilot goes in just to look at it, and then one of the Norwegians comes in and goes boo and scares him, and it works. It's a little you know it's a jump scare that gets the audience as as the audience mm. are like whoa, yeah. and then immediately after after that of course the ice explodes and there's the right. the big reveal jump scare and it's you know the way that that was layered screw you man son of a Yeah. Honestly, uh, made me I just completely Co overlooked how over fucking thing. scientifically <laughs> improbable that is. <laughs> right, man. I also I feel like we we really are shitting on 2011 really hard <laughs> right now. There is one thing. It would be if I if I didn't say it, it would be uh, I would be uh, hedging my bets here and and trying too hard to let 2011 get away with too many things. And I will say this: I think that the the second to last scene uh which is when they go to the mothership uh spaceship where this alien supposedly came from which we i guess we should assume also is full of other entities that are you know like this creature or not or whatever uh that entire the entire mothership spaceship scene could have and probably should have been edited out of the film it, it wasn't necessary and it just added a lot of like it just added a ton of plot holes that didn't need to be added to the mountain it already had so right yeah but, it, it was a little bit of a why moment i think that they really wanted to 
do something that diverged from being an entire remake. And so they're like, let's yeah. have them go into the, the ship or whatever. But yeah, for, for me as well, like I was, I was kind of like, mm, why are you here? <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? But, <laughs> but, but yeah, but at the same time, you know, as, as I was saying a little bit earlier, like it's also 2011, I think was built to be a fun movie. Like yeah. that was much more of the emphasis um, instead of being this like <laughs> horror, you know, like uh, like uh, body horror, like discomfort uh, bonanza that the 1982 version was. Like it was a, a romp, and um, and it was fun in its own right in those regards, despite despite its flaws. Yeah, and like I mean, and it, it wasn't bad. Like I mean, it was I wasn't like they didn't they didn't go into the spaceship, and I was like, oh fuck this, you know, fuck this movie. I'm gonna turn this off. <laughs> That didn't happen. I just was saying, like, it wasn't super necessary because I, I feel like what it was, I think what bothered me the most was why wasn't Kate killed in the spaceship? Like, wouldn't that alien been should have should have been once it's shown to be as powerful as it actually was? Like, why can't it just kill her? It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I mean, yeah. that, that, and you know, John Carpenter is guilty of that in other films, I think, where there's scenes where uh, someone is running from one of his uh monsters or killers and you're like why doesn't the monster or killer just run faster why doesn't michael yeah. myers just pick up the fucking pace you know like yeah <laughs> yeah all right man yeah, we're going and, into, and, uh, into the scoring section and i think that it's only appropriate that we start with the most controversial uh aspect of scoring which is action slash special effects man uh do you want me to dive in or yeah, you want to go, go first go ahead go ahead <laughs> All right. Look, hey, look, this is a touchy subject uh, <laughs> for sure. Because, I mean, yeah, let's face it. Uh, the practical effects in The Thing 1982, these are widely lauded, you know, for throughout the decades now. I mean, I know that movie was a big flop when it came out, but it has since grown a huge cult following. And people love the artistic uh, endeavors that went into it. And, you know, everything they did, it was all handmade. It was all real. There's no computers involved uh very very cool uh so man uh, there is one scene that's uh it's uh that does involve a computer i just want to bring it up real quick it's when wilford brimley is has decided you know he's like i guess they have an ai and some like old ass like uh one of the first computers that was ever created and so he like types in some data and he's like he's like what's the chances that we're infected by this alien and then it plays like this uh this Japanese video game called Agario that people play now that <laughs> I don't think it was out then, but it's just large, large circles eat small circles. And it does that for a while, then it goes 75% chance you've all been uh, infected or someone's infected. That was silly, but that's not that's not the point. That's not action. <laughs> uh man, I'm gonna give damn action's good, man. And good action actors you know you got kurt russell dude i mean that's he's an action star before he's anything else for sure to me uh keith david's excellent uh i love the fact that they're using flamethrowers uh they were using real flamethrowers on set kurt russell is holding a real flamethrower he was interviewed and said that there were several times where he thought it was extremely dangerous because <laughs> it was an un, it was an unpredictable uh weapon and there was times he was like you know fuck dude i'm I'm shooting a real flamethrower in this movie. You know, someone could get very, very hurt. Uh, so, hell yeah. Fucking super cool using real flamethrowers. Action's great, man. I'm going to... I'm going to solidly give 
Oh man, but there was a couple things I didn't like at the end with the final battle. That's where I'm gonna. Uh, that's where the the marks get taken when the the thing becomes like more powerful and uh, is like coming at him under the floor. Solid four stars, four stars out of five for action for 1982. Ooh. What do you say, man? Yeah, I think I can join you there. The um, the practical effects were spectacular in the. Uh, just the as an artist, like looking at the layers that went into like there's one shot of um, one of like the things corpses that's been partially burned that's on a exam table, um, and it's it's like the the layers like because you have like the baseline structure of the sculpture and then you have like layers of texture over that and then like layers of like like liquid like goop stuff over the top of that and like anyway the way that it's built up and it's it's just fantastic looking like it's they just did a spectacular job there's actually a replica of that scene in the 2011 that they used with cg but it, and you can really tell the comparison like it's just not even there um but the uh but yeah like the practical effects were great uh kurt russell is awesome you know doing his whole actiony thing flamethrowers super awesome that would be super scary because you know you have a bomb strapped to your back uh, like that entire time as well, and and you can't predict where the flaming gasoline is going to go. Um, and so so yeah, I I will uh, I'll meet you there on a uh, solid four. Um, you know the it, it was great. It was it was very much an action '80s movie, and um, uh, and so it gets a little bit over the top and silly, but. Uh, especially in like the later scenes that you mentioned, but um, but yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Super appreciative of the artistic integrity of like the models that they made and stuff. So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll join you on a four there. Oh yeah, man. I, I, all right, you heard it here first. Actions of four. That's a great score. And I don't know if you noticed what I was doing there. I found a pencil. It was the biggest, oh, <laughs> the biggest fucking mistake I made in the in the Stephen King episode. Is I did not have a pencil and I wasn't writing down the score i mean we came to a, a the conclusion was what we thought the conclusion was going to be however this time around i will be able to actually at the end have a solid we know what the score is <laughs> um well, yeah man you go for it okay good so we'll we'll sandwich it um so yeah so for 2011 um it was it was really it was fun it had more of an action movie feel to it uh in the sense that you you know, have creatures and you're running around and a lot of stuff explodes, a um, whole lot of CGI. Uh, for me, I, I didn't value it quite as much because the CGI was a little bit unreal. Like uh, when they do the um, uh, the first time in the helicopter and the dude's like face splits open and it's just like, that is 100% CG. Like, yeah. um, anyway, so there was some of that. And then some, you know, of like the inclusions of the, the action scene in the uh, spaceship felt a little bit superfluous um, and whatnot. So, so I thought it was fun and, uh, and, and worthwhile in that sense, but I'm gonna go a one star down from my um, uh, 1982 version and I'll go with a three. All right, man. Uh, I accept <laughs> what, you, what you said, <laughs> but I am gonna go ahead and chime in here with uh, how I feel. And so much of it is uh, what you said earlier that this movie is so much more of a romp. You know, yeah. it's a uh, it's a little bit cleaner. You know, uh, uh, a lot of stuff I I just I, I like a lot. Um, 
there's no uh, <laughs> there's no foley effects that i thought were you know extremely disturbing like when the when the gun didn't make sense to me like why why isn't the gun you know why is the gunshot sound just randomly happening and and, and you know i didn't even take any points off for that either i, I left that alone because <laughs> it's just one mistake uh i, I but, didn't even bring up the helicopter scene with the the sound editing for the uh uh when they're do you do you remember that yeah, part? the sound editing again? is absurd how uh they're able to have conversations without their fucking headphones, headphones. on <laughs> in a helicopter and they put the headphones on it doesn't change so yeah but yeah have, no, we're, we're, good. Have, we're good have you ever been in a helicopter uh no i've been in quite a few planes uh including a acrobatic plane which was oh sick a similar kind of a thing where we were like barrel rolling around you have the same kind of headphones on but i haven't actually been in a helicopter yet i've been in a helicopter and it's uh if you don't have headphones on you would have to scream everything you need to yeah. say to the all right, whatever uh we're, yeah. i'm talking action man i'm talking action, action. uh you know to <laughs> me i and i've seen you know a lot you know on the comments people leave and certain things people uh didn't think the cgi was great i think the cgi was fine it's uh it's not i mean you know it's not the best cgi i've ever seen it's not uh fucking you know it's also not like avatar it's not a fucking you know 200 million dollar <laughs> movie so uh i'm not gonna I'm not going to punish them for not being able to afford like the best CGI ever because it worked. Go ahead. To, to that point as well. I think that um, like I had read that they actually made um, physical models like um, for a lot of those scenes. And then they actually weren't allowed to use them for, there was some sort of higher up uh, decision to go full CG or for the most part, aside from that rig that I was mentioning. So I don't even I don't blame the filmmakers for that uh, either. Just to throw that in there. Oh yeah, uh, that was. Uh, there are a lot of uh, like uh, what you're saying with things with the studio that yeah. this could have been a much better film, but the studio really got involved and uh, they did rewrites, a lot of things that didn't need to happen, and I think they they detracted from what could have been the final product. I mean, this could have been this film could possibly have been a film that would have that everyone would have agreed they would have been like oh this is actually better in so many ways if they had let the if they hadn't done so many uh yeah rewrites uh like you said taking away some like they were going to have some practical effects ended up having none so yeah I, I hear you there man but in your own words man it was a romp start to finish fun as hell the flamethrowers were cool as hell the uh when juliet becomes a giant mouth and chases Kate down the hallway and eats the scientist. That's fun as hell to me, man. Uh, a lot of great shit. I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna throw them a four, dude. They're gonna they're gonna get the the four treatment on action. All right. All right, dude, uh, moving on. Now we're on plot for uh, uh, 1982. Right. Um, yeah, uh, I, I enjoyed the plot. Uh, I'm assuming that we're probably going to include pacing uh, in that as well. And I thought that um, this movie was uh, particularly well uh, paced as far as the tension goes. Um, the, yeah, because it, it's really, it simmers throughout the entire thing. You know, that whole bomb under the table, like, you know, shit is like 
just about to go down at all times and and then they defy your expectations and uh, make it the last character that you would expect at an improbable time and you really get that like burst of uh, of intense uh, <laughs> discomfort uh, and then and I, I love the cold open uh, like I that whole um, initial scene of being confused and trying to figure out what was actually happening and you know kind of the themes that were running through all of that um, and everything else and then you get lots of uh, you know fun flamethrower stuffs the um, you know there are obviously some holes and as I mentioned the I thought that the direction that they took the ending you know could have been a little bit more sewed up to um, kind of help stick the landing in a way that would have uh, enabled it to be a vehicle that you know more people enjoyed and were able to participate in um, so so yeah so I I but I was I was solidly freaked out like the entire time really great tension so I'm gonna go with a four there as well wow you're okay all right man yeah four 1982 on plot shit man I, this is weird because i thought i was gonna i thought i was the guy that was supposed to be <laughs> fighting for the uh the underdog here but i guess not uh because right. i'm gonna go i'm gonna say with the plot and you know i'm this, this is the place where i'm going to overlook shit like costume design and these people should have frozen to death wearing their silly clothes <laughs> i'm not gonna bring that into plot because that's not really the plot that's just that's uh you know it's aesthetic in, in a way to me so uh, i i believe it man i believe the the norwegians chasing the dog i believe that uh a cab uh fucking andy griffith <laughs> would, would have an itchy trigger finger would shoot that norwegian without stopping to hear what he had to say just because he's like hey he had a gun i was scared you know even though he was inside <laughs> a building so totally the kind of thing like that a you know that that type of cop to me also why do they have a cop I don't know. That's <laughs> that, this is yeah, that's this is where like ah this this is actually does draw away from the plot, man. These guys, they're so close to a solid five with me because mm. I believe it. I believe, you know, these are a bunch of blue-collar guys. This is how they'd act. The, the tension between uh Keith David and Kurt Russell, fantastic. I mean, it's yeah, I would believe that there would be guys having those problems. I believe they'd take Wilford Brimley and I I would, you know, I believe Wilford Brimley would have a freak out, uh, or you know, the the character that he is and he breaks all their uh radio equipment because he doesn't want the thing to get away and then yeah. instead of having a conversation with him they just go lock him in a shed okay blair come on man you don't want to hurt anybody the plot is fantastic man you know a thing you don't know who it is everybody's freaking out but yeah the hitchcock feel they almost get a five but there are just some that just had to be plugged and they weren't plugged so it brings it down and i give it also a four which is all i mean that's a fantastic score that's, that's a good ass score so yeah. i mean i i don't feel like i'm being harsh at all when i give them a four all right man let's do a plot 2011 Yes. Uh, so it, it also follows, I mean, I, I really like the plot of the uh, novella, which both of these spring from. Like, I think it's highly engaging in terms of uh, the scenario where, you know, you have the thing and then it's like, you don't know who it is. And like, we get a little bit uh, pulled back sometimes from thinking about 
uh, like the fundamental scenario of this situation, which is technically flawed as well. And, um, and yeah, it, fantastic in, in that as well. Um, and I really liked uh, some of the elements. Uh, I, I like how it dovetails uh, with the first movie. Like it, it really kind of gets interesting the fact that they, you know, repeat the 1982 um, with their, a little bit of a, their own twists and then the two movies mashed up together, which makes kind of a, an interesting statement as well about um, human nature and the fact in the fact that there is so much repetition between the two movies um, that this happened the same way with the same paranoia and claustrophobia and uh, explosion of distrust happened both in this Norwegian camp as well as the uh, US camp um, in pretty much the same way. And, and you could be, interpret that as a statement towards um, the how these actions and this response is pretty much endemic to the human condition uh, given this set of circumstances. And I thought that that was pretty interesting. And um, yeah, they made some questionable choices uh, with the, um, you know, the, that whole uh, going into the uh, spaceship and, and all of that. Uh, but just in terms of the fundamental plot, um, yeah, I would, it, it was a romp, it was fun. I would definitely, uh, I would go, I'd probably go with a four or either a three or a four, but I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt for, for four. All right, hit him with a four, man. And then yeah. I, <laughs> dude, we're like, I mean, obviously we both liked both these movies. So, I mean, why aren't they, you know, why wouldn't they get good scores? Uh, right. Yeah, dude. And like I'd said before, man, with the plot with this one, dude, the fact that it's all a billionaire's fault, I fucking buy it, dude. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely the, the, the little, uh, the little scientist boy that introduces her to the uh, billionaire and he's a sniveling little bitch. And when she like comes in with the evidence and that could have saved, maybe all of their lives when she's like hey this is what's happening like we discovered what's going on and she's like hey you were there you saw it you backed me up is a second opinion and he goes i don't know what i saw i totally believe <laughs> i totally believe that guy would act like that that's, that's those uh, those guys are called nice guys that's uh mm. what they're uh, referred to as why don't why don't girls like nice guys because you fucking don't have a spine that's why girls don't like nice guys uh the, the fact that you know, it's the, the you know, the billionaire's a, a piece of shit while this monster is uh, running, you know, uh, a, you know, while the rampage is happening. You don't know what's happening. The suspense is great. I love that the, uh, you know, the the blue collar, hard drinking Norwegian dudes are the most trustworthy people really that, yeah. that, that are available to Kate. That's a that's cool. Also, that feels very real to me. And yeah, like you said, it's a romp. It it that's it's it's well paced. I mean, there's so much so much going on that makes it just totally work for me. Man, I honestly, I mean, I like I said, I, I didn't like the I didn't I didn't love the spaceship, but it doesn't ruin the film and it doesn't make anything else less real. The, the alien got here somehow, got here in a fucking spaceship. They didn't have to go in it, but they did. <laughs> uh I'm gonna just go ahead and throw them a five on plot, man. It's 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 not uh it's not flawed enough to say that it doesn't deserve to say that this is a this is a good enough plot. Do they, am I being too kind? Am I being too kind? It's your prerogative. Fuck it, man. I watched <laughs> the movie and I at no point watching it did I go bullshit. So yeah. that's <laughs> that's where I stand on it. Uh right. We'll throw we'll throw off. Cool, cool. We'll throw a fucking four because I'm being insane if I give that up. <laughs> right. I'm giving it a four on plot. Next up, we've got acting. If you're worried about me, it was 
got any surprises for each other. I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Yeah, so for me, like, uh, like I thought that the acting in uh, the the 1982 version was very good. <clears throat> the um, the amount of discomfort and fear that the cast was able to portray uh, was palpable throughout the entire thing. Like they were, they they really sold that for me in the sense that, and and it conveyed it to me. Like it is a very uncomfortable experience, like watching these people go through all of this uh, intense trauma and Kurt Russell doing Kurt Russell things like when he's all cold and shaking and has the freaking uh, yeah. bomb, uh, the stick of dynamite and the flare and all of that. <laughs> yeah, it was good. And then, you know, a lot of the uh, the other stuff with, um, you, you get some, you know, some of the cardboard characters like Windows or, or whatnot that don't really shine as much, but that, that's okay. And um, and then you get really good and kind of weird moments like at the end with the, their whole uh, 80s macho, you know, uh, yeah. drink ourselves to death in the cold kind of a deal. Um, so I, I really enjoy the acting. I really felt it from uh, the cast, like all that fear and everything else. So, um, you know, it, I, it wasn't, uh, I wouldn't say it was a masterclass, uh, but I yeah, also I really valued it. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'm going to go a four with that one as well. You're gonna give him a four. All right, man. I'm gonna All give him right. a four. It, it was solid in my in my perspective, just based on how I felt. Like I felt the characters a lot, which for me is usually the sign of good acting. Um, that it when it's so emotionally resonant and like they were freaking out. And and I generally, you know, like they felt they felt real for the most part. So uh, that's my main bar for there. And even like you said, uh, even some of the cardboard characters had some moments to shine. Like because I think Nalls was a cardboard character at the beginning, but when they're all, when uh, when McCready has them all tied down and he's doing the blood test and they're mm -hmm. all freaking out because they know that someone that is that they're tied to is the thing, uh, yeah. he really gets to shine by also showing that, you know, the terror. Yeah. Uh, the guy that, uh, I can't remember his name, but he's the, he's the guy that's in charge of the dogs. He's, he runs the kennel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He shows, uh, like, you know, he's another character that's kind of like, doesn't get much chance in the movie but i believe he loves dogs <laughs> he comes I, across yeah I, I i felt that when they were you know the thing was in there in the kennel or whatever and then somebody uh shoots the dog and then you get a real strong reaction for him where you know he's like no what are you doing or whatever and um and yeah he was like 100 percent in on the dogs i liked that guy like we were we were you know i was it was easy to empathize with him and then in the beginning when they like bring the thing into the camp or whatever and he goes up and licks the dude's face clearly identifies him as the dog lover that he that the thing can manipulate and goes up yeah. and licks his face or whatever yeah he was awesome i was on board with him entirely and of course yeah kurt russell keith david uh kind of carry it a lot wilford brimley is always good he always plays wilford brimley uh <laughs> i don't feel it would it would be unfair for me to give this movie anything less than a four so we're going four on uh four on acting why not cool uh all right let's give uh 2011 their acting scores yeah for me um it again like 
similar to uh, earlier, what was our first category, the, the action, like I felt like it was similar. I felt like they did a good job. I, I really quite like uh, Ramona Flowers. Um, yeah, she's great. She's, she's great. Uh, I thought she brought quite a bit of charisma and, and, uh, and power to the role, you know, because it's really interesting. The, um, the original novella uh, who goes there, uh, the main McCready, uh, he is a overpowering character. Like he's painted uh, by the author as being literally like this uh, huge, I think he, he's like six, four, six, five or something like he's huge and like, uh, and looks like bronze, like a statue. And they refer to him in all of this language that is like metallic and like inorganic and uh, huge and powerful and has this incredible sense of presence that's almost a little bit superhuman. And um, I think Kurt Russell uh, captured a decent amount of that, like the cool factor, although he's not, he doesn't have the stature that the original character did. And I think that um, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead uh, captured a part of that as well in terms of just the, the out and out charisma for uh, a scientist that's going through and, and uh, doing her whole, her whole deal. You know as well as I do, there are too many variables. Open your mouth. Open your mouth! Uh, and, you know, you got the easy to hate uh, billionaire guy, and you've got the skeezy guys, and then, you know, the cool Norwegian dude. Um, so I, I thought that the acting was, was generally good. Um, I didn't have a similar sense of, uh, of really feeling viscerally empathetic towards the characters in the same way that I did in the 1982 version where like I really felt their terror, like, like it was palpable to me. Um, that, that didn't really happen quite as much. And I'm sure a lot of the, like this part also gets into some of the directing and, and everything else. Some of those shots with the camera, which really manipulates the viewer's emotional state and everything else. But, but because I didn't really feel them in the same way, like I, uh, and, and that is kind of my bar with acting, uh, I'm gonna give them one star lower and, uh, and give them a three. All right, man. Uh... I'm gonna to have to disagree with you a little bit, just in the sense that like, I don't think there was any really there was any bad acting in it. Uh, yeah. Obviously, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead was great. Like we said, we both love Ramona, Ramona Flowers and anything yeah. that she does. Uh, Joel Edgerton, really good, really believable for who he's supposed to be. The billionaire uh, Ulrich Thompson plays. He is does a fantastic. That actor makes me hate him. Just <laughs> and so you, when you were saying about there being something visceral. I viscerally hate the billionaire scientist. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, let kill him first, kill him first, you know. <laughs> and of course, uh, my my man, the wildling from Beyond the Wall, uh, uh, Tormund. Tormund, dude, come on, man, he he can do no wrong after <laughs> like all he has to do is be in a movie and still look like Tormund, and I love it. <laughs> so I am, you know, but of course, this isn't Goodfellas, you know. It would be absurd yeah. for me to shoot a five at this uh <laughs> so i'm gonna go with a four man and now Ooh. we are down to wow factor and yeah best shit dude tell me tell me what you think wow factor 1982 it's this is a completely subjective category <laughs> wow <laughs> is what i think about that the um just the 
well, the fact that this has become a, a, a classic uh, and kind of transcended, it kind of like, I don't I can't actually think of a, a really visceral body horror kind of movie from before this, like it kind of was breaking out into its own little subgenre, at least as far as popular culture goes, from what I know. Um, it's, and, and it's lasted throughout this entire time. I had a profound visceral re reaction to this movie, especially the first time I saw it because I was much younger and was like horrified like, and so uncomfortable, like the, the entire time uh, in, in, in a masochistic way that I really actually do kind of enjoy. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it was fantastic in that sense. Like it, it really captured its moment uh, incredibly well, I thought. Um, it's, uh, which is hard to do, especially because I really enjoyed the novella. Like that's kind of where my heart is in, in that. But I think it actually improved on it in a couple of respects. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was great. It left a visceral impact, not a comfortable one. It was uncomfortable throughout the time. The whole thing had some cheesiness in various parts. But as far as like just being wowed, like jaw on the floor, you can't help but have a strong reaction to the movie. Uh, yeah, it was a five for me. A five. Oh my God, that's crazy, dude. This is where yeah. we are finally going to diverge. But I, I mean, because I feel like we've been really, really close. It's so similar on, on so much stuff yeah. with this. Uh, but shit, man, this is the, the way I've been thinking about it. And as I know that this was, uh, this movie was greenlit by universal because of the success of Ridley Scott's alien. They're like, mm -hmm. Oh, people do like a scary alien movie with a nihilistic, uh, ending and, you know, lone survivor, you know, or no, no survivor, perhaps, you know, perhaps it's, we don't know. We don't know if anyone lives. That's how they end it. Uh, and then of course it failed so much in the theaters and that could have been due to so many aspects it could have just been the way people felt at the time and people maybe just didn't want to be depressed in 82 <laughs> uh, i guess we're going through a lot also there's the fact you know i don't know if you had uh heard some of this i think john carpenter brings it up himself this is at the height of the aids ep epidemic mm. and uh that's a lot of like what's going on here is you know because that's when people didn't really know what AIDS was it's it's a disease it transfers person to person a lot you know it's kind of like I don't know if it's inspiration even for this some of the way that's what the the film well I mean but I think it definitely I think that... wasn't wasn't for the 1938 original short story which was really almost exactly the same so Okay. Um, it, oh. that, that's kind of an unfortunate parallel. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm only saying it because John Carpenter said it. I, I, I did, did, it didn't even dawn on me, but I mean, also I wasn't, yeah, there, <laughs> uh, but, uh, here's the problem for me, man, is that I immediately, when I found out this was greenlit by universal, because they're like, Hey, alien was fucking the shit everyone loved it you can do this you can do it with a, not too much of a budget go ahead go for it john carpenter i had to then i felt that i was obligated to compare it to alien for wow factor alien is a five the five stars wow factor movie there's no doubt about it if i'm comparing um if i'm comparing the thing to alien it, it just can't come close to a five-star rating I, I actually felt like i had to give it a three on wow factor because it doesn't blow me away in the way that alien did alien blew me the fuck away this was just cool so right and, and i, I think that, that 
Oh, I think that that is like the key for why it was a box office failure as well is that it was set up to make that comparison. And this this movie was not alien at all. Like yeah. it's not even really an action movie necessarily. Like it is really a, a visceral, uncomfortable body horror film that is um, completely different in its own like. And, and body horror is like a very bizarre and interesting uh, subgenre with like writing and everything. Like I've written um, a couple of stories that fall under that. I, I definitely have a little bit of a uh, predilection to to go in that zone. And I think that it it captures that whole thing extraordinarily well. And so when when I'm judging it as uh, it, it's without that comparison to Alien, and like because if you if you do try to put it in that frame, I definitely agree like this it does not it does not fit at all and i think that's why it flopped and i think that that was a really ridiculous move by uh, universal to draw some of those kind of comparisons um and and i think that's where a lot of the uh, uh people's opinions uh, especially early on really stemmed from um and so yeah i i totally see where you're coming from with that and it is not aliens yeah. <laughs> or alien or well see al- that's the thing is also aliens that's was that is possibly i mean it is in my top 10 favorite films of all time so that once again we're talking about wow factor wow factor wow factor i just, I just can't be given away five because part of that i believe is a uh, rewatchability i watched the movie the original movie alien who knows how many times i've watched the movie aliens just an absurd number of times those because those are five star uh wow factors so i'm gonna go ahead and i'm gonna say say hey this movie's cool but it is uh the best I can give it is a three on wow factor. Cool. All right, man. Uh, final uh, scoring is wow factor on the thing 2011. Uh, okay. So for, for me, it's, uh, it's kind of the inverse in terms of um, because, and, and again, a lot of this does come down to taste as well. Like, like I, I really liked the kind of niche, uh, art value of uh, the 82 and I really I enjoyed the um, the 2011 version as a fun movie like I thought that it was it was cool and and a romp and there were some parts in there that uh, that I really definitely enjoyed and I it was kind of interesting and fun to have a uh, female horror antagonist that's not or a protagonist that's not like uh falling under some of the unfortunate tropes that that uh, genre has has taken yeah. uh, you know she did a pretty good job of being the action hero and being in uh control of the situations like that like the at, scene at, that we mentioned at, with at no the billings po- like at, i was gonna say at no point during the film is she running down the hallway in high heels screaming right. like that fucking doesn't yeah. and so good for them <laughs> yes good, good for the creators for of this film <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know she's very much in command she's Got a flamethrower, uh, not afraid to use it. What controlling all of these dudes and and going through all that, and then you get the you know fun elements of uh, having a protagonist to hate or an antagonist to hate, and um, uh, and doing that that whole deal. So for me, it was a fun movie, but um, more forgettable than uh, the 1982 version. Um, uh, which I also probably wouldn't rewatch very frequently, yeah. uh, but but it's um, but yeah, I think it, which is interesting too. I think that 2011 is probably more rewatchable 
than the 1982 version, just because the 82 is such an uncomfortable experience that I don't want to go live there. Uh, yeah. Like, I, it's good to have experienced that, but I don't want to really go back to it. Um, and then the 2011, it's something that I could see having on in the background. Um, and so, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so for me, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely give it like a star down from the 1982 version. So I can go, I can go with a four. Like it, I think it did what it was intending to do, uh, pretty well. Like it was a, a fun action romp and enjoyable in its own right. Um, but for me personally, uh, didn't have the same lasting artistic impact where, it really kind of changed the way that I view the world a little bit. Like, like the, the 1982 version, it kind of sets my bar for the uncomfortable, just like revulsion tension. Like that, that kind of is my high bar for that particular set of feelings. And the 2011 one, it doesn't really, it's just, it's fun and doesn't set any new bars for me. So that, that's where I'm coming down a star on it. All right, so uh, what you're throwing a, a four? On yeah, I, I can go cool. with four. I think it did what it was intended to do very well. Well, man, I think I'm going to surprise you here. Uh, okay. Because, yes, rewatchability. Uh, this is, I am far more likely to rewatch the this one than I am <laughs> the original. Because, yeah, especially it's something you can have on. You could like fuck around on your phone and watch this, and it could be on. You know uh, what this this movie for me is? What I think of it as is if uh, if you had a cold and you were like sitting there and you had like a blanket and you're eating some soup this is the perfect movie to put on and just watch it soup movie yeah just let you let it take you away from your cold man forget you have a cold for a little bit and you're like oh you know while you get better it's a good just yeah. uh you know it's a good movie for that uh and like you know when we were talking about wow factors when I was, you know i had to i had to give john carpenter's the thing of you know a harsher rating because we're comparing it to alien I don't really have a, a one for one thing that I'm comparing this movie to, but there the wowness of it, man. Uh, I think it's only fair for me to say that the wow factor is maybe a two. Really? Oh wow! I'm not. I'm not. It's. I don't love it. We're for, we're, we're getting for, real. In, in, for, in the I don't love place. it for wow, man. I, I love it because it's a it, it's a romp, but it it's not like a romp on the level of like oh my god, I gotta watch this again, you know? So yeah. Dude, all right, let's count this up. All right. <clears throat> Dude, were you keeping score too? <laughs> uh, no, I wrote down my scores before we started, but <laughs> I don't have your scores. <laughs> well, Did anyway, you man, I don't want to sit here and fucking add all this up because it's an obvious, it's obvious John Carpenter won, um, but uh, by a slim margin. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and I, as you said, uh, I think when we were discussing it uh, originally, you know, these are both movies that deserve to exist. You know, like they they yeah. have their their whole deal going. And uh, um, yeah, and I, I don't regret having watched either of them. Uh, I'm a little scarred by uh, John yeah. Carpenter's <laughs> version, but in, in the good way that I actually seek out. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's very, very similar. I And I just really, I mean, I predicted this is that when we got to the end of uh, the shining versus Dr. Sleep uh, they're complimentary films. And I mm -hmm. totally think with this, if you really, really liked the thing and you're not just uh, a stick in the mud about, you know, somebody trying something new with it, it's really cool to go see the Norwegian prequel. I think that's, mm -hmm. I think that's really where I, uh, I land on it, man. 
they both yeah they both deserve to exist they're both cool movies you know they're they uh differ mainly just really in uh effects one's cg and one's practical effects so and you know one's a little more uh spookier and darker and you know quieter and one's a little more uh rompy rompy (laughs) 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 all right guys you hear your first fucking john carpenter uh the thing to uh 1982 by a slim margin beats uh matthias i can't pronounce your last names 2011 (laughs) the thing (laughs) all right uh brandon man thank you so much for joining me on this film analysis podcast i'm glad that we have finally figured this out so no one else has to do it (laughs) (laughs) good to be back uh thanks for having me again you know how i knew you were human when you showed it back at base no your earring it was your other ear Kate! Kate! 